Jesus cleansed his temple of spiritual hypocrisy, fruitlessness, and corruption, but also offered himself up on the cross in order that he might cleanse a people for himself from all the peoples of the world. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. Some of you may know the name Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley was an 18th century minister, and he was a prolific hymn writer. Uh, Some of his better-known hymns include, And Can It Be? Uh, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, and hark the herald angels sing. We all like to sing that one at Christmas. Now, I knew that he had written quite a few hymns, but I didn't realize just how many. Would anyone like to take a guess? How many hymns do you think that he wrote? How many hymns did Charles Wesley write? A hundred? Who says more? Maybe 200? 300? He wrote over 6,500, 6,500 hymns. I had no idea that it was that many. But one of those 6,500 hymns is called Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild. And I wonder, is Jesus Christ gentle? Is he meek? Is he mild? Yes, he is. Is Jesus a patient and merciful and gracious Savior? Yes, he is. But is that all that he is? Is that the full description of Jesus Christ? No, it isn't. He is gentle, meek, and mild. He is patient. He is merciful and gracious. But he is also a fearsome and righteous judge. And in our message today, we will see both aspects of his character on display the gracious Savior, but also the righteous judge. And I wonder, do you have a biblically complete picture of Jesus in your mind? Now, I am so thankful for his mercy, his patience, and his grace, and I need it all the time, every day. Anybody else here need his mercy and grace all the time, every day? Right. We do, every minute, it seems, right? But we must never forget that he is also holy. He is righteous. He is just. He is judge. And those who have rejected him will meet him as judge. But those who have received him as savior must always remember that he is also to be revered as the disciplining corrector. So we're continuing then today in our series, Unique, The Life, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we are in this series that is a harmony of the Gospels in which we are putting together the Gospel testimonies from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John into one flowing, harmonious account following the order of events as suggested in this book by John MacArthur called One Perfect Life. So for today, then, we're seeing that we're in the Passion Week, that final week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. Jesus speaks of cleansing and being lifted up. Cleansing and lifted up. 
We are in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. We're going to put those together for one flowing account here. So what is the big idea? What is our main takeaway for today? Well, it is this, that Jesus cleansed his temple of spiritual hypocrisy, fruitlessness, and corruption, but also offered himself up on the cross in order that he might cleanse a people for himself from all the peoples of the world. He cleansed a physical temple of hypocrisy, fruitlessness, corruption, but then he offered himself up on that cross that he might cleanse a people for himself, not just from his own people, the Jews, but from all the peoples of the world. Before we look at our text here, a little context, Jesus has journeyed to Jerusalem for the final time in his earthly ministry. He was anointed in Bethany by Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And as Jesus goes to Jerusalem for this final time, he knows well that he will soon be going to the cross where he will give his life. And on this journey, he clearly presented himself as the Messiah to the nation. But the religious authorities wanted to kill him because they were fearful of him and fearful of his popularity among many of the people. And last week, we saw how many of the people were excited by him, and they shouted out to him, Hosanna, save us, son of David. But they had their own agenda and their own expectations for him. What they were looking for from him was a political Messiah. They wanted a political salvation. They did not yet understand the nature of the salvation that he would bring. Before he entered the city, he wept over it because he knew the hearts of most of the people. And he knew that, well, he knew the hearts of all of the people, but he knew that the hearts of most of the people were rejecting him. And he knew that judgment lay ahead for that city because of their rejection of him. Now, I noted last time this statement in the scriptures, and I told you to take note of it, that there was much more happening there than it might appear at first. And that is at the end of our text last week, it says, so when he had looked around at all things, he left them and went out of the city to Bethany as the hour was already late. And he lodged there with the 12. I said, you know, when he looked around at all things, this was not just a casual looking around at what he saw there. He wasn't casually looking around the way you or I might or the way a tourist might look at a city. But rather, his looking around at all things, his was the all-knowing eye that saw all, saw all that was happening And he was looking with an eye toward judgment. Now, why do I say that? Well, because of what comes next in our text. Let's look here from Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19. We're told, Now the next day, in the morning, as he returned to the city from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves by the road, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, 
for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no fruit grow and let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it immediately. The fig tree withered away. So here we see Jesus's hunger. Now, Jesus was human in every way that it means to be human, just as you and I are. He was human, and as a man, he became hungry, just as you and I do. And as he was returning to Jerusalem from Bethany, he sees this fig tree from afar, and it had leaves on it. And fig trees were a common source of food for people. So he sees this tree, he sees the leaves on it, and perhaps this tree would provide some delicious figs to satisfy Jesus's hunger. But when he arrives at the tree, he sees that it is fruitless. As he draw near, he looked it over and discovered that it had no fruit, no figs, nothing but leaves. You know, this tree, it looked promising from afar. But as he examined it up close, there was nothing there. There was no fruit. The tree held promise, but it ultimately proved to be fruitless. And so what Jesus does next might surprise some of us. He condemned the tree. He judged the tree. He said, let no fruit grow and let no one eat fruit from you ever again. Now you might be thinking, wow, that seems a little harsh, don't you think? Seems a little harsh. Well, you know, at first glance, it might seem that way until we understand what Jesus was doing at this moment. You see, this was a teachable moment. When Jesus taught, he had, he had sermons, he told parables, but there would also be events or things that, he, that would happen that he would then draw from that to teach a lesson. And this was one of those teachable moments. Because you see, in Old Testament times, a fig tree was a symbol for the nation, Israel. It was a symbol for God's people. And this tree looked promising from afar. But upon closer inspection, it proved fruitless. And in the same way, the nation held such spiritual promise but it too proved to be spiritually unfruitful. And so he used this incident to teach a message about the judgment that was to come upon the nation because of their fruitlessness, as evidenced especially by their rejection of him. Now, before we go on, I bet there's someone here now Maybe many someone's here who are thinking, hey, wait a minute. This was not fair. This was not right for Jesus to do this. How could he condemn this tree for not having any fruit? When it says right there, it was not the season for fruit. All right, who thought that? Wait, this isn't right. This isn't fair. Why would he condemn a fruit for not, a tree for not having fruit when it was not the season for fruit? Well, in short, the answer is this. 
Although it was a little early by a few weeks for the season of figs, some trees were early bloomers, if you will. And the fact that this tree had leaves means that it should have had some fruit. But there was none. One Bible scholar answers the question this way. It says, The fruit of the fig tree generally appears before the leaves. And because the fruit is green, it blends in with the leaves right up until it is almost ripe. Therefore, when Jesus and his disciples saw from a distance that the tree had leaves, they would have expected it also to have fruit on it, even though it was earlier in the season than what would be normal for a fig tree to be bearing fruit. Also, each tree would often produce two to three crops of figs each season. There would be an early crop in the spring, followed by one or two later crops. In some parts of Israel, depending on climate and conditions, it was also possible that a tree might produce fruit 10 out of 12 months. This also explains why Jesus and his disciples would be looking for fruit on the fig tree, even if it was not in the main growing season. The fact that the tree already had leaves on it, even though it was at a higher elevation around Jerusalem, and therefore would have been outside the normal season for figs, would have seemed to be a good indication that there would also be fruit on it. Now, who thinks that was far more explanation than you really needed? But you got the point, though, right? There should have been fruit on that. So there we have it. So there is the fig tree, a symbol of the nation of Israel, was fruitless when it should have been bearing good fruit. And in the same way, the nation should have been bearing the good fruit of faith and righteousness. And as a result of their fruitlessness, they would be judged. And speaking of judgment, look at this. So they came to Jerusalem, and then Jesus went into the temple of God and began to drive out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. So here we see corruption, corruption in the temple. Now, the temple in Jerusalem was a massive complex. Imagine a complex about 1,500 feet by 1,000 feet. It was over 35 acres. That's a pretty good-sized temple complex, wouldn't you say? And it was supposed to be, it was supposed to be a place of prayer and worship. It was to be a place of prayer and worship for the Jews, but also for God-fearing people of all nations, for God-fearing Gentiles as well. In fact, in the temple complex, the outer court of the temple complex was the court of the Gentiles, where they could go there to pray 
and to worship. The inner court then was for the Jews. A little further in there, animal sacrifices would be offered by the priests on their behalf. Further in was the temple building itself. And only the priests could go into the temple building. Further in yet was the most holy place where God dwelled in the midst of his people. And only the high priest could go in there and only on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. And so it was here in this outer court, the court of the Gentiles, where Jesus saw a host of wicked and corrupt practices. The money changers were there. I wonder, well, who were these? Or how many have ever gone on a, a trip or a foreign trip? You went to Europe or something like that, and you had to exchange your money so that you could take your American money, change it into the country or the, the currency of that country so that you could purchase things there using that currency. And so I'm sure many of us have done that before, right? Well, if you were coming from all over the Roman Empire, you were a God-fearing Gentile or a God-fearing Jew, for that matter, you had come, you would have money that had Caesar's image on it or perhaps other pagan deities on it. And when you got to the temple, uh, you probably weren't going to bring along your own animals for sacrifice all that journey. What would you do? You would purchase an animal for sacrifice there. Now, it's not a bad thing to have this service available for people to be able to come from all over and purchase an animal for sacrifice in the temple for you or for your family. But when you got there to do that, you could not use your foreign currency. You could not use this currency that had Caesar's image on it or pagan deities that was considered improper. So what would you do? You would exchange your money for acceptable money, for temple currency, if you will. And of course, in doing that, there was a fee, a small fee. Actually, there wasn't a small fee at all. What were people doing? They were gouging and taking advantage. So now you had people coming to worship and they're being ripped off. They're being taken advantage of by these money changers. They were charging exorbitant rates so that people could worship there. So Jesus saw this and he was very angry at that. But there was also something else going on there that we see it hinted at a little later. It's also the people just had such a casual attitude about it. First off, you had this corruption, this hypocrisy going on with the money changers. But you also had people who were just waltzing through there. This was a place of worship and prayer. And you had people who would waltz through there as a shortcut. And they're carrying along their wares and their goods. And they're going, because it was a lot easier to just cut through the temple complex than to walk around it. This is a good-sized thing, right? So it'd be a little bit, imagine if, I want you to imagine for a minute, let's say that, that you were out there, you know, in, in the lobby there, and you wanted to get to the, the east parking lot over here. But in order to get that, you, the, you would have to go way around to the back and over and this way and this way. When, you know what, you could just cut right through here and go out that door, it's a lot quicker and easier to get there by just cutting through here and going there than having to go way out back there and around the building and then this way, right? 
So imagine as we are here, we're conducting a worship service and we're trying to worship, we're trying to pray, and along comes somebody just waltzing along, going through and pay, pay no attention to me, don't mind me at all, and goes right out through there. And we're seeing this happening all the time. As we're singing, as I'm preaching here, here are people just walking along through here, waltzing through and going out there. Would you find that a little bit irritating and annoying? Disrespectful, right? That's what people were doing. It was the temple of God. And this is how it was being treated. Now, as the temple of God, is Jesus God? Yes, he is. This was his temple. And he sees this corruption, this abuse, and this careless disrespect and disregard for the holiness of the place and its intended purpose. It was his temple. It was his house. Think about that for a moment. So Jesus determines to cleanse it. Jesus was not pleased, to say the least, by what he saw happening in his temple. He was angry, righteously angry. So he drove out those corrupt people along with their wicked practices, out of his temple. Also, the text tells us he would not allow anyone to carry their wares through the complex. There's their shortcut, people. No, 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 you're not doing that here. And then he taught them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And here Jesus quotes from, Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. So in cleansing the temple too, he fulfilled prophecies in Ezekiel 37, Zechariah 6, and Malachi 3, which all prophesied that Messiah would cleanse, would purify his temple. Then we see a fearful rejection of him. Once again, the chief priests, the ruling establishment, they were angered by Jesus Once again, he was flouting their authority. And not to mention, he was interfering with good business. By the way, the the high priest, these, these people who were cheating, the money, do you think that it was the money exchangers themselves only who were profiting from this? Who else do you think was profiting from being allowed to set up there and do all that? The priests, and particularly the family of the high priest. The high priest was a crime family, essentially. And Jesus knew this. They were profiting from this. So not only was he once again that he was a blasphemer, allegedly. He was a threat to the nation and to their place. But he was also bad for business. So they wanted to kill him. As I said, the temple complex, though, was not just for Jews. It was also intended for God-fearing Gentiles. It was a place for them to come to pray and to worship. But instead of a sacred... and, And where was all this marketplace and corruption? Where was it taking place? In the court of the Gentiles. So it was a place for them to come and pray and worship, but instead of a sacred place for prayer and worship... The court of the Gentiles had been turned into a corrupt 
marketplace. Listen to what John tells us next. It says, Now there were certain Greeks, or Gentiles, among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus, Here you had some curious interest. You had some genuine seekers. We hear that term seeker today, right? Here were some seekers. Here were some God-fearing Gentiles who were seeking out Jesus. They wanted to see him. They wanted to hear more about him. See, because God is not only the God of the Jews, he is the creator of all people whom he made in his image. And there were God-fearing people among the Gentiles, and here we see some who had come to worship at the feast. And they wanted to see Jesus. These were Gentiles who could not properly worship at the temple because the court of the Gentiles was a stockyard of animals and corrupt money changers. Another reason why Jesus was angry and cleansed the temple. So these Gentiles, these God-fearing Gentiles, want to see Jesus, but we're told, but Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that from death comes life. From death comes life. Jesus compared his death to a a grain of wheat falling into the soil and dying. And only after a kernel dies in the ground can new life sprout from it. See, Jesus knew that obedience to his Father's call would cost him everything, that he would soon die on a cross. Yet he also understood that his death would produce much fruit by making it possible for multitudes of believers to be born again and receive eternal life. And then the Lord passed this principle along to his disciples. He says, he who loves his life will lose it. That is, we cannot love our lives and still expect to follow Christ. What does he mean by that? It means what? If we spend our lives grasping for the things of this world, we will ultimately lose it all. And after pursuing all that this world has to offer, in the end we will discover that everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, that nothing was gained under the sun. Jesus says, the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus isn't telling us to hate ourselves. What is he saying? He's saying, don't love the things of this world and the things that are passing away. Rather, hating our lives means giving up all of that, giving up our own way, setting aside our self-centered existence and abandoning ourselves to serve the Lord and others. 
So he who loves his life applies to anyone who shrinks back from sacrifice for the cause of Christ because such a person is, person is concerned with self-preservation. That person is careful to maintain security, seeking their own well-being, and they'd rather deny Christ than face trouble. This one is warned that he will lose the very thing he loves and is most desirous to keep. His own life will be forfeited. It says, The one who hates his life in this world applies then to anyone who is willing to give up absolutely everything in this world, including life itself, for the sake of Jesus Christ, and that such a person dedicates himself exclusively to God and his kingdom because he knows that the reward is priceless beyond all earthly value. This person has the promise of eternal life. Jesus speaking of from death comes life. He knows he's about to die. And he says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. From death comes life, and from his death would come life for all peoples, all the peoples of this world. Jesus did not shrink back from the terrible cost that he was about to pay in order to obtain eternal life. And this eternal life was not just for his own people, the Jews, but it was for all the peoples of the world. The Father's name would be glorified through the death of Christ. And the Father acknowledges this by a voice from heaven. Some thought it was thunder. Others thought an angel had spoken. But Jesus said, no, this voice was not for my sake, but it was for yours. Because judgment has come on the world. The ruler of this world will be cast out. And if he be lifted up from the earth, he will draw all peoples to himself. See, through the death of Christ would come the judgment of the world. The ruler of the fallen world system, Satan, would be cast out. That is, he would be utterly defeated. And by being lifted up from the earth... Jesus would draw all peoples to himself. When Jesus said he would be lifted up, what was he referring to? Being crucified. You know, sometimes we, we sing, there's a song in which we say, lift him up, lift him up. And I, say, and I know what they mean. They mean like lift up his name and praise, like, like shout his name and praise. But really, biblically, when you say lift him up, what are we saying? Crucify him, crucify him, Right? So be careful of that when you say that. Next time you sing a song, make sure you're lifting up his name, not lifting him up. Right? So I said, so if he be lifted up, if he be crucified, 
If he die, he would draw all peoples to himself. All peoples. Now this doesn't mean all people will be saved. But it does mean that the death of Christ is for all people groups of the world. And the scriptures tell us that the great number of the redeemed, God's people from all ages, will in fact include people from every tribe and tongue. Next, then the people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light told them to believe in the light. The people wondered, why is Jesus speaking about dying? Hasn't he come here as the conquering Messiah to to depose the Romans and restore our nation to greatness? Why Why is he talking about dying? The Son of Man must be lifted up. Messiah must be crucified. This made no sense to them. Wouldn't the Christ remain forever? But Jesus tells them to walk while they still have the light. That is to respond in faith and obedience to him now before the darkness overtakes you. Believe in the light. Walk in the light that you then may what? Be children of the light. I want us to talk for just a moment about a little temple relocation. See, now God is present everywhere, isn't he? And yet, Scripture also speaks that while he is present everywhere, there is a certain special localized presence. Kind of his, where his presence is is special. It's, It's in the throne room of heaven. And God instructed his people to to build a temple which would contain this special place where he would dwell among his people that most holy place. Now in Old Testament times, while the people were wandering in the wilderness, they didn't have a temple. What did they have? They called it the what? The tabernacle. It was like a mobile temple, if you will. But then when the temple was built in Jerusalem, you had the holy place, but then you had the most holy place. It was in that most holy place where God's special presence dwelled among his people. But now the temple in Jerusalem is gone. Does that mean God no longer dwells with his people? No, you see, the temple's relocated again. It was the tabernacle that went through the wilderness with the people. Then it was the temple in Jerusalem. But now where is God's temple? Right here, you. In the hearts of believers. You are the temple of God now. Not a building in Jerusalem or anywhere You right here, and not even this church building, although I'm thankful for this church building that we have where we can gather together, this church building is not the temple. You are. We are, right? You are the temple now, and how long are you going to be the temple? Forever. He will dwell within you forever. 
Scripture also speaks of a new heaven and a new earth when that heavenly dwelling place of God will come down from heaven and be present in the new Jerusalem on the new earth. And it says what? And now the dwelling place of God is with his people on the new earth, right? But you are the temple and always will be too. Talked about temple cleansing. Jesus cleansed the temple in Jerusalem by physically driving out all the cheating, corrupting, irreverent people who were making a mockery of God's holiness and God's intention. Now that we are the temple, does Jesus still cleanse his temple? Yes, Yes, he does. How? Does he ever bring judgment on the church? He sure does. When the church is corrupt and needs to be cleansed, he does. Church discipline, but also what? The discipline of the individual believer. So is he still cleansing his temple today? Yes, he is. So if we're going to be cleansed, what must we do? Well, we must repent, that is, change our mind and turn away from our sin, confess, agree with God about the sin, and then receive, receive his gracious cleansing from all unrighteousness. Scripture says what? If we confess our sins, speaking to believers, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and, joy, faithful and just to do what? To forgive us our sins and what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repent, confess, receive his gracious cleansing from all unrighteousness, and then do what? Walk in the light. Walk in the light by the power of the Spirit. So what? What do you want me to do? I said, Jesus cleansed his temple of spiritual hypocrisy, fruitlessness, and corruption. He also offered himself up on the cross in order that he might cleanse a people for himself from all the peoples of the world. That's us here today or among those, aren't we? So what shall we do? Well, believe in the light. Believe in the light Will you have it. Scripture says what? Today, today is the salvation. Put your trust in Christ today while you can for forgiveness of sin. Repent. Turn away from sin. Turn to him, his perfect life, his substitutionary death on the cross, his resurrection. Turn away from sin and selfishness and believe in him. Put your trust in him to forgive your sin, to give you the gift of eternal life. Believe in the light while you have the light. And walk, walk in the light. I wonder, does your little corner of God's temple need a little cleansing too today? Repent, confess, receive his gracious cleansing from all unrighteousness, and walk in the light by the power of the Spirit. And finally, then proclaim, believe in the light, walk in the light. Finally, proclaim the light. Share, share the good news, share the gospel story with others. Witness for Christ in word with your mouth, but also what in deed and how we live. Witness for Christ in word and in deed. Believe in the light, walk in the light, proclaim the light while you have the light. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time here today in your word. I know that we had a lot to consider here today, but I pray that your spirit would take what we have heard and apply that to each one of us, to our individual hearts and minds. Lord, you know 
uh, where we stand before you. And I pray, Lord, if there is someone who needs to know you to turn away from sin and self, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would quicken their spirit, that they might come alive and turn to you in faith, Lord. Turn from sin, believe, trust you, Lord Jesus, in your perfect life, your death on the cross for our sin, and the victory that you gained for us now. Lord, if we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would continue your gracious work of cleansing in our life. You continue to cleanse your temple today, Lord. Maybe there's a particular sin that we need to confess right now. Lord, we call it what it is. We admit it for what it is. We agree with you with that. We turn from that now. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your gracious forgiveness and provision for us. Thank you for the promise that you will forgive, that you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, may we be faithful witnesses, faithful witnesses of the wonderful good news, the gospel story. May we be faithful to share that in word and in deed. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.